Welcome everyone um, to Mosaic Christian Fellowship. If you're new here, welcome. Uh, my name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here, and I welcome you uh, to our service as we transition to looking at God's Word. If you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be reading from Jeremiah 26. And so uh, I invite you to turn there if you have your Bibles. If not, it's going to be on the screen. I'm just going to be reading the first uh, 10 verses, but we're going to be looking at all 15 uh, verses. Well, first 15 verses of this um, as we look at God's Word together. Again, welcome. Um, I hope uh, that the time of worship was powerful uh, for you. And so here's Jeremiah 26. At the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, King of Judah, this word came from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah that come to worship in the house of the Lord, all the words that I command you to speak to them. Do not hold back a word. It may be that they will listen and every one turn from his evil way that I may relent of the disaster that I intend to do to them because of their evil deeds. You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, if you will not listen to me, to walk in my law that I have set before you, and to listen to the words of my servants, the prophets whom I send to you urgently, though you have not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh, and I will make this city a curse for all the nations of the earth. The priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. And when Jeremiah had finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, then the priests and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him, saying, You shall die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, This house shall be like Shiloh, and this city shall be desolate without inhabitants? And all the people gathered around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord, And when the officials of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house uh, to the house of the Lord and took their seat in the entry of the new gate in the house of the Lord. This is the word of God. Um, If you've been with us, uh, you've been walking through Jeremiah uh, with us. And last week we saw Jeremiah continuing his ministry of bringing this word of repentance to God's people, calling God's people away from sin and turning back to God. Essentially, he's been doing this for 25 chapters, and last week we saw him do that to the evil shepherds of Israel, calling out the leaders who have hurt the people of God and brought indictment to them. Today, uh, he continues this ministry of calling people back to the Lord, but um, actually, if you look at the passage, the focus is not so much on the message itself, but a lot of the focus is on the response of the people, how they respond to God's word, how they respond to this proclamation. And for the first time, Jeremiah is going to be getting a death threat because of what he proclaimed um, that the Lord should tell him to proclaim. And so what we see is Jeremiah being persecuted for the word of God. And that's what we're going to talk about today, persecution. And that may feel like a topic that's way over there somewhere else, a topic that seems foreign to you, but actually I want to show you that it, it is relevant. Now, it is, it is true that where we live, a lot of how Satan works is not through persecution, but rather through seduction, seducing us to the world rather than persecuting us to death. But I think that we as Christians, when we look at the call to uh, be persecuted and to carry our cross, when we look at persecution, it actually very quickly focuses our faith. And actually looking at persecution brings a lot of clarity to us as he calls us to a costly faith. 
And so today we're going to be looking at persecution and we're going to be seeing how that applies to our lives and how we live out our faith. And I think that you're going to see that there's a lot that we need to learn uh, from persecution in the way that we think about our faith. And so we're going to look at this call to have a costly faith, a faith that costs us something, a faith that brings persecution, that even um, opens the door and invites it into our lives. We're going to look at the costly faith, and then we're going to look at how to endure it. And then finally, we're going to see why it's worth it, why Christ is even worth persecution in our lives. Won't you bow your heads with me and ask the Lord for help? Let's pray together. Lord, Father, we come to you um, with our hearts, and we pray that you would prepare it for this word. I know that persecution is maybe something that seems so far away and foreign to us, but I pray that you would help us to see today that it is the heart of discipleship. And so help us to understand, not just with our minds, but with our hearts today, your call to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What we see in our passage today is that our faith is a costly, costly faith. Uh, Jeremiah, in our passage today, is called to stand in the court of the temple, which is at the center of Jerusalem, which is at the center of the faith geographically, and he's called to deliver this message to God's people, which is turn from your sin and turn to God, and he gives a warning, if you don't do it, then he is going to bring judgment. He's doing this in the most holy place, in the most holy city, and he's warning them that if they don't listen to God, then God is going to take his presence away. And as he's saying this, he says a word that is very sensitive, a sensitive topic in that time. He says, if you don't do this, he will take away his presence from you and he will make Jerusalem, the place where you are now, he's going to make this place like Shiloh. Now, nobody's shocked, and you guys don't feel the weight of that word, but Shiloh was actually a very sensitive topic to the Israelites. You see, Shiloh was the place that was Jerusalem before Jerusalem. It was the place where God's presence rested. If you remember when um, Samuel was called to ministry, Samuel was sent to Shiloh. And it's at that place where the Ark of the Covenant rested. God's favor was there, and because God's favor was there, they were God's people. That was Shiloh. It was Jerusalem before Jerusalem. It was the place. But then a terrible thing happened there. A terrible thing happened there. And because a terrible thing happened there, they don't really talk about it. You see, what happened was the people of God turned away from God and they didn't obey him. And because they didn't obey him, God took his presence from that place. He brought the Philistines there and took the Ark of the Covenant. And it became a place of shame and not a place of worship. It's funny that, you know, as you read the Old Testament and you go further along in the second half of the Old Testament, you don't hear about Shiloh very much. It starts to fade into the background. You know, my kids are really into the movie Encanto these days, and they watch it all the time. And the song that's constantly in my house and is constantly running in my head is We Don't Talk About Bruno. And some of you guys know this song. It goes, we don't talk about Bruno. And it's constantly running in my head. It's the new, like, let it go. It used to be let it go constantly in my house. And now this is the song, um, We Don't Talk About Bruno. And basically the idea is, um, it's this uh, magical family. And in this family, there's this uncle. And um, they, they all had magical powers. But this uncle Bruno, a lot of bad things happened, they think, because of him. Or they, a lot of bad things happened around him. And so he was kind of exiled from the family. And they never talk about him. You're not supposed to talk about him. 
That's what the song is saying. And maybe there's a family member in your family like that. Or maybe there's an issue in your family like that. You see, Shiloh for Israel's family was like that. We don't talk about Shiloh because it was a shameful place. It was a shameful place. It was a place where God took away his presence and bad things happened. It was something that was deeply uh, shaming for them. It was a forsaken place. Bad things happened at Shiloh. And so this is a sensitive topic for Jeremiah to be bringing up in the midst of this. And maybe Jeremiah, that, that's why maybe he was tempted not to say Shiloh. Maybe I'll say everything else, Lord, that you told me to say, but I, I'm not going to say Shiloh. Because that is a nerve in the heart of a God's people. And it's going to bring a response that maybe we don't want. But God's call to Jeremiah is very clear. You see it over and over in this passage. Make sure you say everything that I tell you to say. Say all of the words. And he says here, do not hold back a word. He say he's calling for full obedience. I know it's a sensitive topic. I know that it's going to hit a nerve. But I want you to say Shiloh. I want you to say it because I want to get their attention. That they must turn to me again. And as you could imagine, the backlash is severe. In fact, it's so bad that they would bring up the death penalty. Read verse 8 with me. This is what happens. When Jeremiah had finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people. You see the emphasis there again. He said it. He said Shiloh. The priests and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him saying, you shall die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord saying, this house shall be like Shiloh. In this city shall be desolate without inhabitants. And all the people gathered around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. This, notice here, these are Israelites. These are God's people doing this. These are God believers doing this here. It's the prophets. It's the priests. And you know what? They don't even have an argument against Jeremiah. They don't have any kind of logical argument. They just react. They're just offended. They don't refute him. They just respond. Because this is so offensive that Jeremiah would say that this place, Jerusalem, God is not scared to abandon this place like he abandoned Shiloh. Jeremiah hit a nerve. He hit a nerve. And I want to tell you that if you are a Christian, brothers and sisters, no matter where you live, no matter when you live or who you are, there are nerves that our faith is going to hurt There are nerves that faithfulness is going to hit if you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And that means that no matter who you are, persecution is something that will touch you if you want to follow God. Persecution is something that is alive and well and can touch you if you want to obey the full counsel of God. And that's why persecution is not just something that is for the Christians in Saudi Arabia and Afghanistan and India and North Korea. This is a concept that is core to our understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Now, let me define what uh, persecution is more distinctly before we move on, just so that we're all on the same page. You guys know me. I like doing this. Make sure that we're all on the same page. Now, when I say persecution and you get persecuted for your faith or you get opposition for your faith, I'm talking about for righteousness' sake. I'm not talking about a kind of opposition that you face because of your personality or because of your sin or the way that you talk to people. This is a persecution that comes from righteousness and obedience to God. 
That's different. That's different than us being persecuted because we are foolish. It is for righteousness' sake. It's the gospel that should be hitting a nerve, not you. Another way to say this is, it's okay if the world hates you because of Jesus. It's not okay if the world hates Jesus because of you. Do you understand the difference? It's okay if the world hates you because of Jesus, because that's the call. But if the world hates Jesus because of you, that's not persecution. You see, what we're talking about is a righteousness that hits that nerve. And anyone who desires to live a godly life, Paul says, anyone who desires to live a godly life will hit a nerve in this world. There's no escaping it. And it's in every place and every time. And in every place and every time, it's a little bit different. If you look at the 16th century, it's interesting that the the nerve that was uh, being touched was the issue of church authority. Where does authority really come from? Does it come from the Pope and the people who sit in these chairs in the church? Or does it come from the Word of God? That was at the core of the Protestant Reformation. If you look at the 17th century, you see brothers and sisters being burned alive at the stake, being drowned for what? For sacraments, the Lord's Supper, and for baptism. That's the nerve that's being hit. In the 18th century in the United States, the nerve that was being hit was this issue of revival. In the 19th century, you see liberalism coming out of different places in Europe and hitting, and that's kind of the controversial thing. The 20th century, the Scopes trials open up that century with the highlight on faith versus science. All these different nerves in our history, and today, maybe the nerve is the issue of human identity. Who are we? What does it actually mean to be human? What does it mean in terms of gender, sexuality? What does it mean to be human? Who gets to say? You see, there are nerves all throughout history, and if you are going to be fully accountable and obedient to God's word, then you will hit a nerve. It doesn't matter what time, and it's always different, right? If you were to tell 16th century Christians who are struggling with church authority, if you tell them, hey, you know that one day... The church is going to feel this controversy over gender. They're going to say, what about gender? How could that even be controversial? Well, little would they know what's happening today. If you were to tell a Christian today that people were dying over the sacraments, Christians today in the church might say, what's a sacrament again? Can you? I forgot. But in each time, you see, when I said Shiloh, you guys didn't blink. But for them, in Jeremiah's time, Shiloh was a nerve. And God says, you are to speak every word that I give to you. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, this is why, look, we don't pursue persecution. We're not looking to be persecuted. What we're looking to do is be faithful to God's word. And when we're faithful to God's word, persecution will come. 2 Timothy 3, Paul says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire to live a godly life, no exceptions. Now, let me tell you what that doesn't say. It doesn't say everybody who goes to church will be persecuted. Not true. Especially in the West. Not everybody who goes to church will be persecuted. That's not what it says. It says, anyone who desires to really live a godly life 
will be persecuted. In fact, sometimes the opposition comes from the church. You see, if you just want to come to church, and you don't really want to live a godly life, and you don't truly want to be a disciple of Jesus, you'll be fine. You probably won't be persecuted. You probably won't be opposed that much. If you just want American churchianity, I think you're good. Paul doesn't say everyone who goes to church will be persecuted. Everyone who actually wants to live a godly life and wants to pick up their cross and to follow Christ, they will be persecuted. And sometimes it's even by people who call themselves Christians. It's the prophets and the priests who attack Jeremiah. You see, if you want to be a true follower of Jesus Christ, you don't need to go to Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, or North Korea to face opposition. You just need to follow Christ truly. And even among your church friends, you may feel opposition. If you are a university student today, and you seek to, you seek to actually live a godly life, you will face opposition. You know, academia today... It's set up in a way that it's hard to hold on to your faith. If you are a young adult in our congregation or anywhere, you know, young adults do what young adults do. But if you, as a 20-year-old young adult, really seek to live a godly life and pursue Christ in a real way, and those who are around you, you know, this happens in the church. Sometimes we have Christian friends who just get together and sin together. But they go to church. But if you are the person in your friend group who wants to live a godly life, expect opposition. And Jesus says, that is normal. Not everybody in the church will be persecuted, but all those who want to live a godly life will be persecuted. You will have church friends coming after you and saying this and that. That's what happened to Jeremiah here. The prophets and the priests came after him. Everyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. That is the normal experience of a true Jesus follower. If you're a parent in this room, and all your Christian friends have just nominal faith, and really just honestly at the heart of it, they worship their children. Honestly. They go to church, though. They go to church around their golf schedule. They go to church around their extracurricular schedule. When they have time... If you're a parent that really desires to live a godly life and to raise up godly children in the faith, be ready to sometimes be called a bad parent in Bergen County. Straight up warning to you. It happens. You know, my, my daughter, she's part of these extracurriculars and she just started a couple of other ones. But then, you know what happens if you're a parent in this room, all the kids kind of, they do these extracurriculars together. And um, a lot of times it's on Sundays. And there was something that all of my daughter's friends are going to do. And, you know, you feel bad if your kid feels left out. You know, that hurts to see your child left out of something. And so you want to do it. And so for, but for me and Hime, we decided that She's not going to go with her friends and do this. And she's going to faithfully be a part of the worshiping community. 
Now, that's not getting, you know, beheaded in Egypt. That's not getting your church burned down in China. These things actually happen. And yet, brothers and sisters, that's something that we still have to realize, that anyone who truly seeks to live a godly life, if you truly want to have godly disciples in your children, be prepared to seek or um, be prepared to receive some persecution for these things. Sometimes you'll even be called a bad parent by your own kids because they perceive being good as something and you choose godliness. And they say, you're a bad mother. You're a bad father. Anyone who seeks to live a godly life will be persecuted. If you just want to go to church, you should be fine. But if anyone really seeks to live a godly life, you will face opposition. In fact, Peter, he says this. Um, where did I put it? Oh, he says this, Peter, in 1 Peter 4.12, he says this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. You see, persecution is something that we all feel. It's something that we all experience And it's not just something that happens overseas. But here's the benefit of thinking about persecution together. And the cost of carrying the cross, which means to actually pay the cost of following Jesus, of full obedience, of full submission. Here's the benefit of of us thinking about these things, even though we're in a non-persecuted country. Persecution quickly clarifies your faith. It quickly clarifies and focuses your faith, and this is what I mean. You know, sometimes we spend so much time trying to figure out a kind of faith without suffering. Uh, We try to figure out a kind of game and craft, a kind of Christian life that is devoid of suffering. And that is really, really difficult. Because Jesus' call is, pick up your cross and follow me. And some of us are trying to figure out, how do I follow him without picking up my cross? I wonder if there's a way. I wonder if there's a way to be a Christian without sacrifice, without sacrificing for my kids and without sacrificing anything for my family. I wonder if I can have it all. And a lot of the questions sometimes that arise in our faith comes from that desire to live a godly life without suffering. And we ask questions like, well, what does it look like to do this actually, right? And when people say that, that means like, how do I do it without cost, right? How do I I be faithful actually in this way? And a lot of confusion comes from trying to invent that kind of strange unicorn faith that doesn't exist in the Bible. And we're trying to strike this perfect balance between being faithful without suffering. How do I carry the cross without carrying the cross. You know, sometimes Christian faith is confusing, I will admit to you. But sometimes it's not as confusing as we make it out to be. Because in some of the questions that we're asking, the answer is, you have to suffer. Sometimes the answer is just, you're going to have to endure suffering for the sake of Christ. Now, if you're trying to figure out a faith without that, It's going to be really confusing, yeah. It's going to be really hard. Because to pick up the cross and to follow Jesus is the only way to faith. 
Persecution, brothers and sisters, clarifies what we're trying to do. It clarifies Jesus' call. Because sometimes we're just lost in trying to figure out a faith without suffering. But persecution reminds us, that's right, pick up your cross and follow me. And for some of us, our faint experience in the Christian life and the Christian walk. And what I mean by that is sometimes, you know, we feel like God is so far away, right? We feel like God is so far away in our, in our experience and we feel like he's not close to us. Can I say that sometimes that is because you are trying to follow Jesus without carrying the cross? If you try to find God without cost, without suffering, without experiencing opposition and weight in your life, you're going to find yourself very far from the real Jesus. Here's a principle for us. The further you are from your own cross, the further the Lord will feel from you. Because he says, pick up your cross and follow me. We say, well, I'm going to leave my cross there and I'm going to follow him. It doesn't really work that way. The closer you are to your cross, the closer you will feel to the Lord. Don't you wonder sometimes how Christians can actually be burned overseas and hang on so intimately to God? How can they do that? How can those Christians be beheaded for the sake of Christ and hold on so closely and intimately to Christ? You know, I I had a conversation uh, with a pastor in India, and he says that those who are being persecuted in India, they worry about us in America. Because they have a depth of faith, and then they look at American Christians sometimes, and they wonder, I wonder what they're trying to do. A faith without suffering. How are they going to do this? Because that doesn't exist. There's no intimacy with God if we throw away the cross. My brothers and sisters, persecution is something that we all have to think about because everyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. Secondly, If we understand that, then we have to understand how to endure the suffering, suffering for Christ, how to endure the persecution. And here's, I hope you came with your thinking caps on today a little bit, because here's a paradox, and the paradox is this. You know, how do we endure suffering well? We endure suffering well when we have a tested faith. You see, the only way we can endure the tests of faith is when we have a tested faith. And I know that that is hard to understand, but let's go back to Jeremiah here. Verse 10. When the officials of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord and took their seat at the entry of the new gate of the house of the Lord. Then the priests and the prophets said to the officials and to all the people, this man deserves to be sentenced to death because he had prophesied against the city as you have heard in your own ears. Then Jeremiah spoke to all the officials and all the people saying, the Lord sent me to prophesy against this house. Look at his resolve. And the city, all the words you have heard, and now mend your ways and your deeds and obey the voice of the Lord your God and the Lord will relent of the disaster that he has pronounced against you. And here's the key verse in 14. But as for me, behold, I'm in your hands. Do with me as it seems good and right to you. Look at that resolve. How did Jeremiah have that kind of resolve? When they say, we're going to kill you for this. And he said, look, do with me what you please, but turn from the Lord. 
How do you have that kind of faith in the face of persecution? And here's the answer. Jeremiah had that kind of faith because it was tested. It was built up. You see, not that long ago, I don't know if you remember, Pastor Andre, he, he preached about Jeremiah struggling in his faith, crying out to God, you deceived me, you lied to me, and he, you see him struggling with his faith basically all throughout the first 20 chapters of Jeremiah. But I tell you that all that struggle was not for nothing. It was building up Jeremiah's faith, and it was testing his faith so that he could have a tested faith. His faith was being forged in the fire. And my brothers and sisters, if we're asking, how do I have the kind of faith that stands up in persecution or opposition in my own life? I tell you, that kind of faith, it doesn't come overnight. And that kind of faith, it doesn't necessarily come from reading books. It comes from a testing that's, that happens over time. James, in his opening chapter, says this in James 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know, and this is key, listen to this, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, what is steadfastness? Steadfastness is a kind of faith that holds up in testing. So what is he saying? The testing of your faith gives you a faith that holds up in testing. Now, I know that that's hard for people who are educated and think about processes and linear lines and hard for people like us because we're thinking, wait, so that means that the earlier tests were going to fail. If only by the process of testing your faith you get a tested faith, what about the early tests? You're going to fail. I got A's from kindergarten to senior year in high school. I can't have that. It's hard for people who maybe have that kind of life experience. But it's true. That's how you get a tested faith, through the tests of faith. If you remember Moses, when he was called by God to lead the people of Israel, and he was called to go to Egypt, he had a really hard time because he didn't believe that God could use him. And he was struggling with God. And he said, I can't even speak in front of people. I can't do this. And you see so much wavering in his faith. But as he's called, you see him being tested through his call. And you see God providing in his testing, even sending the 10 plagues, miracles, to tell Moses, I have you. You can trust me, even in opposition. And you see Moses being built up from that place of being faithless until the moment where he actually drives uh, the people out of Egypt and then they come to the place of the Red Sea and there's no way through. And then all of a sudden the armies of Egypt are coming behind them and the people of God are stuck between death and death. This huge test. And in that moment, the people are panicking and they say to Moses, why did you bring us out here and what does Moses do? He turns to them and he says this, the Lord will fight for you. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. Wow. What kind of faith? You know, can you imagine the people of God say, oh my gosh, where did that faith come from? Is there a book you would recommend so that my faith could be built up like that? I get asked for book recommendations all the time. Is there a book that you would recommend? I want a faith like that. 
My brothers and sisters, this kind of faith does not come from books. I love books, but this kind of faith comes from the testing of faith over time. That means that you need to start to fight the battle of faith today. If you desire to live a godly life, you could just keep coming to church if you want to, but I'm talking about if you want to actually live a godly life, then this is the kind of faith that you cannot have tomorrow, but you have to start today. You have to start fighting the battle of faith today. Now, finally, I want to tell you that persecution will come, and persecution is only defeated and endured um, through a tested faith, but I want to tell you that he is worth it, that Jesus is worth it, every bit of it. In Philippians 3, Paul talks about this. Later on, Paul would say, I have learned this. I have learned this faith. But in Philippians 3, he starts giving the backdrop of why he even decided to do this, even why he decided to endure the suffering. You know, Paul had a pretty good life. But why did he choose suffering? And in Philippians 3, he gives us the reason. In Philippians 3.12, you know, through that passage, he's saying, that he counts everything as loss and he wants to endure everything for the sake of Christ and he wants to share in Christ's sufferings. And then in verse 12, he gives the reason underneath all of this. And he says this, this is the reason. Because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Because Christ Jesus had made me his own. I want to know him in the power of resurrection that I may share in his sufferings because I do all of this because he has made me his own. You know, brothers and sisters, you'll never suffer for Jesus Christ if he's just an idea. Very few people will die for a cause. I wonder how many of us will actually die for an idea, a cause. I think very few of us will. Some might. But every one of you will suffer for the people that you love. Every one of you will suffer for love, for a wife you love, a husband you love, your children. Very few of us will suffer for an idea, but all of us will suffer for love. Paul says, you know why I did this? Not because of some idea, some proposition, some theology. I do this because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Do you hear how personal that is? How personal his Savior is? You see, it's only love that's going to bring us to this place. And you'll find that love when you look at Jesus Christ suffering for you. There is the righteous sufferer, the one who endured suffering for you. The one who, for us, we suffer for the sake of Christ and he's completely worth it. But Jesus Christ suffered for us and we deserved none of it. And when you start to see that, as something that is personal to you. Not Jesus Christ died for sinners, but Jesus died for me. And Jesus Christ, he suffers for me. And I love Christ. If you don't have that, scarcely will you die for an idea. You see, you have to have that love for Christ that is born out of his love for you. That's the only way you'll suffer for Christ. That's the only way you'll sing something like, I've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. 
no turning back. I don't know if you've ever seen or experienced a small group of suffering, persecuted Christians in an underground church singing that very low because they don't want to get caught by the authorities, singing, I have decided to follow Jesus, holding their children's hands, the threat of their life and freedom, singing together in a circle, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. You know, persecution is clarifying for us because the kind of faith that it requires for those Christians underground to sing that song is the same faith that you and I need to endure our suffering for Christ. What they use to pick up their cross is the same faith that we need to pick up our cross. And so persecution is not something that just happens over there. But brothers and sisters, it's clarifying for our faith because Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. And when we see his sacrifice for us, he helps us to see he's worth it. He's worth it. Maybe you've been trying to have um, a Christ without a cross. It's hard, isn't it? <laughs> it's because it doesn't exist. But when we receive that in our lives and we endure it, then he's able to test our faith over time and give us what we need to stand in that day of testing. Let's pray together and close. I just want to ask you to go and pray to the Lord um, who is your lover, who died for you and gave himself up for you. And when you experience him in that personal relationship, that's when you are able to actually make sense of the Bible because one of the craziest things the Bible says is, count it joy, my brothers, when you face trials of all kinds. What kind of nonsense is that? Count it joy when you are persecuted. You see, that only makes sense when you are in love with the one who died for you. That only makes sense when Christ is your own because he has made you his own. And you could say with Christ, it's granted for me that I might suffer for his sake. My brothers and sisters, let's go to him in, in prayer. There are some things that maybe you need to confess to the Lord. Lord, I've been trying to make up this kind of faith without suffering, without cost. I pray, oh God, show me, show me that it is granted to me to suffer for your sake. Let's pray together.